Welcome to the North Main Podcast, a production of North Main Street Church of God in Butler, Pennsylvania. This podcast brings you North Main's messages every week. We strive to know God intimately, grow in Christ continually, and go for Him daily. I invite you to listen in today as we explore the Bible and learn about its unchanging truths for living life God's way. Let's listen in to this week's message. The birth of Christ has a message with it, and it's a message of joy. Joy to the world, we sing at Christmas time. But it's actually a joy that's meant to be sung at all times of the year and all places. For God's people do believe that joy was embodied in the birth of a child in the small town in Bethlehem, and his name was Jesus. This is an eternal joy for believers in Christ because of what his birth stood for. We believe as Christians, that that small child, Jesus, was the embodiment of the very God of heaven and earth. That through him all things that have being came into existence and that nothing exists that did not come through him. That all things, as Paul tells us in Colossians, hold together because of him. Several years ago, uh, on Christmas Eve, I showed a video clip from, uh, I believe it was Louis Giglio's church, and he had had a conversation with a scientist, a doctor, who said that there's actually a glue that holds cellular matter together. It's called laminin. And under a microscope, when you actually magnify this structure called laminin, it's in the form of a cross believe it or not, that holds all cellular matter together in the human body. It's powerful stuff. Look it up. Laminin. I don't know how to spell it right now. Google probably does or Siri to say, spell laminin and it'll spell it for you. But look it up. There's a video clip on it. It'll show you the actual microscopic structure of this. But this child born in Bethlehem, we believe is the very embodiment of God. Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2 that though he was God, he did not see equality with God as something to be cling to or, or, or attain. What does that mean? Well, what he means by stating that is that God became man and dwelt among us, just as Des spoke just a moment ago. But in order to become like us, he had to shed of himself some of that glory that he had in order to take on human form. Did that make him less God? No, because he was still fully God and fully man. The full glory of God in a human body, the human body could not contain. And so he emptied himself, it says in Paul's letter, Philippians chapter 2. So why do I tell you all this? This wasn't even in my notes, and the PowerPoint people are probably looking at this saying, where in the world is he going? I tell you all of this to foreshadow this idea that who Christ was in the manger was fulfilled in who he was at the cross. But if it ended there, that would be a tragic story. A Shakespearean play, if you will. But it didn't end there. Because just three days later, he rose from the grave. That's what brings the Christian hope. Not just during Christmas or during Easter, but at all times of the year. 
Sure, we focus on his birth during the Advent season. But we focus on his birth not solely just because he was born, but because of what that birth would represent as he grew into a man and as he took on the sins of the world. As he showed us who God was, which wasn't what we thought. He came to his own, but his own received him not. It says, we didn't recognize him. What does it mean, we? The people then, but I guarantee you, if he were to come today, we probably wouldn't recognize him either. Because we have in our own mind's eye a preconceived notion of what we think God is, how he should act, what he should do, and how he should look. Where do we go today? Well, this is part one of part two. Part two will be next Sunday. But part one is I'm going to talk to you about the reward of faith. We talk, we're talking about eternal joy. We're talking about the birth of Christ, what that birth actually means, and what the end result of faith in God really is. A couple of weeks back, we looked at James' letter in the New Testament In the very first chapter, he says, consider it pure joy, my friends, when you encounter troubles of many kind or trials of many kind. Why? Because the testing of your faith produces endurance and endurance when fully grown gives you this mature faith, making you complete, needing nothing. Making you complete, whole, 100% complete. How many of you, you don't have to raise your hands, it's rhetorical. How many of you feel complete this morning? And I hope you do. This year has tested that completeness in most of us. This year, everything we thought was secure that we could stand on has been yanked out from under us in one way, form, or fashion, or another. Whether it's your job, whether it's your health, whether it's your mental or emotional status because you've been cordoned off from the people you love the most. Everything that we held dear has been tested this year, hasn't it? And this year for North Maine, our theme being joy, joy has been tested to the limits. But when we read scripture and we see the very essence of what God calls us to is this hard walk of faith. Paul tells us, fight the good fight of faith. If faith was easy, it wouldn't be a fight. Faith is hard. It doesn't come easy. And that's why Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthews chapter 5 through 7, says that way is so narrow, the gate to get through that is so narrow that not many people take it. Rather, most people go the wide path. So much easier. Because faith is hard. I want you to see today what the end result of faith is. As we read in the book of Revelation, it doesn't seem like a great Advent scripture. Chapter 21. And we'll look at chapter 22 next week. Revelation 21, I'm reading from the New Living Translation today, so it may be different from the version you have, but this is what it says. John, the beloved we believe, is the one who wrote the book of Revelation, one of the 12 disciples. 
And he writes on behalf of Christ, who's given him this vision of heaven. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared. Let me pause for a second. What is he talking about the new heaven and the new earth? We get that, I want you to understand, heaven in the context of scripture can mean two things. There is a heaven where God dwells, where his very presence is in all of its fullness. That is a place where we long to be. But in the very beginning of time, the very first verse of scripture, what does it say in Genesis? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You know what he's talking about there? So this second form of heaven is not this eternal place where God's being dwells, but it is the heavens, the sky, the universe, anything outside of the earth itself was considered by the ancients, the writers of scripture, as being heaven. So when we read again in Revelation, the very last book of the Bible, that there was this, this old heaven and this old earth, the sky, the stars, the moon, everything beyond the earth and the created realm and the earth. He says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared and the sea was also gone. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. Out of heaven, out of the skies, coming down. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. And here's a beautiful picture. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain or bickering or hatefulness or mean-spiritedness or bad attitudes or slander or anything of the sort. All of these things are gone forever. There's no COVID there. Did you know that? It's gone. There's no treacherous snowstorms to drive through, even though it's beautiful. There's no dysfunction within the family anymore. There's no broken home. There's no addiction. We can't fathom a place like that because our reality is in the here and now and it looks so contrary to that. Verse five, and there was one sitting on the throne who said, look, I'm making everything new. And then he said to me, write this down, for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. And he also said, it is finished. When was the other time we heard that in scripture? At the cross. Jesus breathed this, uh, Jesus says, is this finished? And he breathed this last. And now this is the final, it is finished. The consummation of salvation, which we talked about last week. If you remember, I said there is a salvation in the here and now, but also a salvation to the there and then. We are saved through the blood of Jesus Christ when we confess with our lips and believe in our hearts that Jesus is Lord. But we will ultimately be saved from 
the world in which we live because the world in which we live will be no more someday. And the world in which God creates and prepares for us, as Jesus said in John chapter 14, will be the ever-present reality for our eternity. He says, it's finished. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To all who are thirsty, I will give freely from the springs of the water of life. We read about that in John chapter 4, the woman at the well. Do you know that story? Where she's there at midday and Jesus is in this Samaritan town outside of one of the cities. And he asks a woman who's come out to give him a drink of water. She calls him out for being a Jew. And he says, if you really knew who I was, you'd ask me for living water. To all who are thirsty, I will give them freely from the springs of the water of life. All who are victorious will inherit all these blessings, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But cowards, unbelievers, the corrupt, murderers, the immoral, those who practice witchcraft, idol worshipers, and the liars, their fate is in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Why does he have to add that? I thought God was all about lollipops and rainbows and beauty. Why does there have to be that in there? We'll come back to that. Then one of the seven angels who held the seven bowls containing the seven last plagues came and said to me, come with me and I'll show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. So he took me in the spirit, capital S, which meaning God's Holy Spirit, to the great high mountain. And he showed me a holy, the holy city, Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. It shone with glory, the glory of God, and it sparkled like a precious stone, like jasper, as clear as crystal. crystal. The city wall was broad and high with 12 gates guarded by 12 angels. And the names of the 12 tribes of Israel were written on the gates. There were three gates on each side of the city, east, north, south, and west. And the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones. And on them were written the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Those are the 12 disciples. The angel who talked to me held out his hand held in his hand a gold measuring stick to measure the city, its gates, and its wall. When he measured it, he found it was a square, as wide as it was long. In fact, its length and width were, uh, uh, and height were each 1,400 miles. Then he measured the walls and found them to be 216 feet thick. I'm going to say that 216 feet thick. There's never been a fortified city with 216 feet thick walls that I'm aware of in human history, according to the human standard used by the angel. Verse 18, the wall was made of jasper. That's an expensive wall. The wall was made of jasper and the city was pure gold as clear as glass. I have heard it said that when you purify gold as pure as you can get it, it is actually almost clear. Don't know if that's true. You have to look that up and figure that out. Don't take my word for it. But I've heard when you purify gold to its purest, it is, it is like glass itself. All right, let me continue. Uh, 
the wall of the city was built on foundation stones inlaid with the 12 precious stones. First was jasper, second was sapphire, the third was agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, and the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, did I say that right? The eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The 12 gates were made of pearls, each gate from a single pearl. That is a big oyster. (laughs) Unless we're just really small there. Maybe we could be. Anyway. And the main street was pure gold, as clear as glass. I saw no temple in the city. There is no temple there. And the city has no need of sun or moon for the glory of God illuminates the city. And the Lamb, capital L, meaning Jesus, is its light. John chapter 1, what does he tell us about Jesus? He says he was the light among men. Verse 24, the nations will walk in its light and the kings of the world will enter the city in all their glory. Its gates will never be closed. 216 feet thick walls, but the gates will never be closed. Why? Though it is a massively fortified and beautiful city, there's no need for the gates to be closed because there's no enemy that will ever overtake it. This is pretty powerful imagery. And all the nations will bring their glory and honor the city. Nothing evil will be allowed to enter, nor anyone who practices shameful idolatry and dishonesty, but those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Okay, so what do I say? Where where are we going to go with this? Real quick. Here's the key point. You can fall asleep after this. The reward of faith is eternal life, which results in eternal joy. The reward of faith in this baby born in a manger who became a man who took the sins of the world upon his shoulders on the cross, who died a horrible death, and who rose from the grave. That faith in that man has eternal consequences, which gives us for the here and now an eternal joy for the there and then. The reason we can suffer through trials, tribulations, and difficulties this side of heaven and come out on the other side is because the other side is a place where none of this junk will ever be. So what does it specifically look like? Well, the first point is this. Eventually, God will make his home permanently among his people, and he will make everything new and without flaw. We see this woven throughout the whole theme of Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation. This new heaven, new earth, this old heaven, old earth, the uh, uh, words and, and, and theme runs all the way throughout this. Listen, Genesis 1, 1 and 2. In the beginning, I said this a moment ago, God created the heavens and the earth. Remember, I said the heavens are outer space, the sky, the clouds, all of that. That's what the ancients knew the heavens to be. Again, separate from the heaven where God dwells in all of his fullness. The earth was formless, empty, and darkness covered the deep waters, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Now, from Genesis, we move on to the, from Genesis to the prophet Malachi, the last prophetic book of the Old Testament, this continued theme and narrative is woven in throughout Genesis to Malachi, the whole of the Old Testament. We even read in the book of Isaiah, chapter 65, look, I am creating a new heavens and a new earth, and no one will even think about the old ones anymore. See, Isaiah, 700 years before the birth of Christ, 
gave a prophecy to the people of God that even though you guys are corrupt and horrible and you've been idolatrous and God is taking your nation away and allowing you to succumb to the defeat by other pagan nations, there is coming a day even though we have been unfaithful, that he will be faithful. That's something to rejoice in. It's something to be humbled by, to stand in the presence of the almighty God who says, I don't want you to suffer an eternity separated from me. Yes, there are consequences for your behavior. There is punishment that has to happen. I would not be God if I did not take those things into consideration. But interestingly enough, he did to the point of even dying himself on the cross to take up the weight of all the world's sin and suffering. Every sin you've ever committed, every sin every generation prior to us has ever committed was dealt with through God, through Christ on the cross. And that's what we call good news. That's why we call the Friday that we celebrate before Easter Good Friday, not because it was good he died, but the goodness that came from his death on the cross. But Isaiah tells us there's coming a day. He could even see it. 700 years before the Messiah came, he could even see because he was so attuned to the Holy Spirit and the power of God on his life, being a prophet of God to the people of God who rejected his words and who killed Isaiah, the messenger of God. He could even see what was coming. Century, millennia before it happened. And he even says, you go on to verse 19 of Isaiah 65, he said, and the sound of weeping and crying will be heard no more. Do you see what John writes in Revelation 21? He will wipe away every tear. No longer will babies die when only a few days old or in the womb. No longer will people be considered old at 100 years of age. It's what it says in Isaiah 65. Read it. It's pretty funny, but pretty awesome. It says only the cursed will die that young in those days, people will live in the houses they build, eat their fruit, their own vineyards. They won't be enslaved anymore. In verse 25, in those days, no one will be hurt or destroyed. Second Peter chapter 3, Peter, one of the disciples of Jesus, he writes in the New Testament, on that day, the Lord will come as unexpectedly as a thief. Hey, when is he coming back, by the way? Does anybody know? There are a million books out there with people that speculate. I think it's funny we speculate on the day and the hour of Christ's return when nobody has a clue. And I think God just sits up there and chuckles a little bit whenever somebody writes a book or makes a prediction. <laughs> you think, I'm just not going to do it on that day because you said it. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I don't know how he does it. That, that's what I would do, but I'm not God. Thank goodness for that. The heavens and the earth will pass away. Uh, the heavens will pass away with a terrible noise, and the very elements themselves will disappear in fire, and the earth and everything on it will be found to deserve judgment. Since everything around us is going to be destroyed like this, 
what holy and godly lives you should live. Looking forward to the day of God and hurrying it along. On that day, he will set the heavens on fire and the elements will melt away in the flames. This is why Jesus, when he says, what are you building your life out of? And he gives us this imagery. Are you building it out of hay and stubble? Get the picture of the three little pigs, right? One built us out of straw and the other one out of sticks. What are you building your life out of? You see, if we are building our lives out of things that are eternal and that will withstand the test of eternity, then we too will be standing. But you have to be righteous and live that righteous life. And I hear hear people say all the time, I can't. I'm only human. I make mistakes. See, and this is where the faulty perception of Christianity gets a bad rap. or This is where Christianity gets a bad rap because of this faulty perception. Let me explain what this is. Is that I'm, I'm not perfect. How many of you have ever said that? I know I have, right? I'm not perfect. No, but there is one who is. And when you become his, guess what he makes you? Well, wait a minute. What if I sin? What if I mess up? What if I stumble and fall? See, I grew up believing that he cut me off every time I did something wrong or every time I slipped up. But see, I realized as I grew in my faith and understanding of Scripture, God doesn't cut me off every whip stitch. He is long-suffering. He's patient. I mean, that's one of the things I learned about Scripture and the love of God is that he is able to overcome what we in and of ourselves can't in and of ourselves do, which is why it took his death on the cross to make me whole and complete. Now, he doesn't make me whole and complete without my willingness he did everything I said this last week he did everything for everyone on the face of the earth that he conceivably could do within his powers but he cannot make you receive that gift of salvation nor can he make you love him in return yes there are limits to God's power and I know that sounds so contrary to everything you may have been raised with but there are things God cannot do he cannot sin because to sin would make him something other than God but he also can't make you love him in return the act of who he is as the very essence being love embodied John tells us in his epistle in the New Testament in 1 John twice that God is love. And that word for love, I've mentioned to you a million times before, is agape love. It is very unique to Christianity and to the rest of the world because of Christianity, because Christianity put that word on the map. Actually, let's say God did through Jesus Christ. He says that that kind of love, agape, is selfish, sacrificial, unconditional. It is not something you can earn. It's not something you can manufacture. It is an act of the will. It is not an emotion or a feeling, so you can't fall in and out of it. It's that same love that God had for the world, that he gave his one and only son. But now let's take that to that level. If God is love, then would God do anything contrary to the very essence of what love truly is? If it is real love, true love, it can't be anything other than love. 
And love, true, unadulterated, unconditional, selfless, sacrificial love does not force itself on anyone, nor does it force anyone to return it. We live in a world of conditions for love. If you do this, then I'll do this. If you do that, then I'll do this. But here's the interesting thing, and this is where a lot of people get confused, is God loves you even if you reject him. But he loves you enough to let you choose to reject him even to the dying breath and live eternally without him. Well, that's not loving. I want him to make... No, you don't. Let's think of this in human relationships. Do you want to make your spouse love you? Can you make your spouse love you? How would you feel if the person you're with was only with you because they feared leaving you? What kind of relation? That's twisted. It's a perverted idea of love. It's not love at all. In essence, that's hatred. Sorry, didn't mean to get on this big kick, but... I think people misunderstand this Christian perfectionism and this idea that you can be perfect because he is perfect. When it says, when Peter tells us you need to be holy as God is holy, you need to be perfect as he is perfect, we cannot be that in and of ourselves. You know how many times I talk to people who say, well, I'm a good person. I do all of this good stuff. Doesn't that account for something? And then I ask the question, are you perfect? And then I have people push back on me. But I do all that. Are you perfect? It really boils down to this question. Are you perfect? This is a common question I get as a pastor. My whole ministry career, two decades worth. But I'm a good person. I'm a good person. I'd like to think I am too. And if you want to become a Muslim, that's how they kind of work their salvation out. Allah... In, in Islam, he and the end of your life weighs your good deeds against your bad deeds. If your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, you go to heaven. Woo-hoo! If your bad deeds outweigh your good deeds, you go to hell. How do you know? It's kind of a crapshoot, right? We don't know. But wouldn't it help us to know for sure? See, this is one thing that's so unique about Christianity. It's we can know for sure. We are not perfect. If we live by the laws that we set for our lives, then we get the result of the laws we set, which are imperfect because we are imperfect. But if we live by ones whose laws are perfect and are there to protect and secure us, and we surrender our lives to him, Then we become perfect as he is perfect. We are then able to love because he first loved us. That is in essence this idea of the gospel of Jesus Christ who came to set the captives free. He came, as Luke's gospel says, to seek and save those who were lost. Everything in human history comes to this cross-section of the birth, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ. And you can't take one portion of his life away from the rest of it. 
The second point, and I only have like two sentences for the second point. So you hear me out on this. All who are victorious will inherit these blessings from God as his children. This is what I've been talking about, what you've been listening to for the past two weeks. Those who endure trials and troubles of many kinds can rejoice because they endure. Their faith gets stronger and the end result is eternity with God in his place of heaven. This is where that, that heaven where God is is often called the third heaven in scripture. Paul talks about being caught up into, thir- into the third heaven. Okay. Thirdly, all those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life will be allowed to enter and no evil or evil person will be allowed the entrance. And here, let's go back to this real quick. But I'm a good person. I do good things. There's this mindset that I think it has so pervaded our culture in the past few decades that fosters this idea that everyone is a winner. Everyone gets a trophy. And the purpose, I think, and the intent is, is, is honest, and I think it's, it's a good thought, but it's damaging because it's not true. I wish I could tell you it was. If I were writing the Bible, I would make everybody a winner and everybody would go to heaven. But that's not what we're told. And quite honestly, if we really spend time thinking on this, if God is not only, if God is only a God of love and not justice, then he's not a God of love. I want you to hear me on that because that sounds, again, contrary, but think this through with me. Is if God is truly a God of love, then he's also going to be a God of justice. Love and justice go together. And he's the only one who is able to enact pure, holy justice. That's why we are called not to judge. I can't condemn you to hell. I don't have that authority, power. I can't do that. I can't judge you. You can't judge me. There is a holy judge who will judge all of us. Now, this isn't meant to be disparaging. I don't want to get really depressing here on Christmas Sunday. But the truth is, if what the Bible states is true, there will be separation of those who are faithful to God from those who are not faithful to him. Those who are faithful have their names written in the Lamb's book of life. And those who are not, do not. So why is this important? It's important to know this because the Great Commission is still in effect. We are called to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that he commanded us to. Along the same lines, we live in a day and age I think it's really, this is a, this is a, look at, I'll close with this. We live in a day and age called postmodern. Do you, have you ever heard of postmodernism? So we came, we came out of the modern era, probably in the late 1800s into the early 1900s. Believe it or not, we slipped into the postmodern era, early 1900s. It's stuff that Nietzsche and several other philosophers of his day and age were really promoting. So what the philosophers of your day and age are promoting will hit the next generation, okay? So we are now living in the full impact of what they actually put through the, the academic uh, and higher education institutions, trained up generation after generation of kids, men and women, who end up losing this idea of critical thinking 
and now adhere to this postmodern mindset that there is no truth, that truth is relative, there is no right and wrong, there is no good and bad, there just is. The problem is, if you want to press this philosophical mindset to its end degree, or to the fullest extent, you realize it falls apart, because it's not logical. Now you say philosophy doesn't have to be logical. You're right. But if we're going to live by the live under the auspices of the philosophers of the academic institutions that seem to call the shots for every generation, then we're in big trouble. Why are we in such bad shape right now? This postmodern mindset it says everybody wins, nobody loses. I grew up, I'm a younger guy, I'm in my mid-40s. I grew up in a time where you did get a trophy if you won, you didn't when you lost when you were a little kid. But I watched that transition over my short 40 years of time. That my kids now, everybody gets a badge, a trophy. And, and listen, I think it is a great, good, kudos. You don't want anybody to get their feelings hurt. But the truth of the matter is, if we continue to perpetuate a lie to, to help, to, to make people think that the, that. There's no consequences to evil and sin and death. Then we're part of the problem. Church, you can get scoffed. I get scoffed at a lot for holding that line. I grew up under hellfire and brimstone preachers, the turn or burn kind, you know? And I said, I'll never be like that. But there is some truth behind the message. So I don't want to just kill the message. Because when you read scripture, there is a separation. There's only one who can separate. And the only way to get the salvation from him is to believe in his son, Jesus Christ. Well, what about everybody else? That's your responsibility as a believer in Christ to go into all the world. Does this make sense? The, The church has gotten confused. They pay the pastors to do that. No, you don't. But then I'm not going to pay. Okay. I mean, I believe so much in what I do and in my calling and ministry that I would do this without a paycheck. And yes, the board is listening. <laughs> if that means I have to go out and make tents like Paul did, I'll do it. Doesn't mean I don't at times want to give up and throw in the towel as many of you do. But I know there's something beyond this. And I don't just stand up here every week, week in, week out, or go out there week in and week out with this message of the gospel of Christ because I have to. I want to do it because I want to. Because I know and I believe in the truth of the message of God's word and that they, there will be a day of judgment. Whether you like it or not, whether you like what I'm saying or not, you can, you can say, well, that's not true. And you can believe whatever truth you want to believe. I'm not forcing you into that. But wouldn't it be horrible if you got there and you're like, oh, shoot. That message was true. If I get there and the message was false, I feel like I've lived a pretty good life. And I'm okay with that. I am fulfilled If this ends up just being some other book among millions of books in human history, I still feel like I've lived a good life, a fulfilling life, a life that tried to help others. 
to do the right things, to love one another, to love God. But I'd rather gamble the way I'm gambling than to gamble that there's no God at all. It's a dangerous gamble. So what is a reward? The reward is eternal life. As our worship team comes forward, let me close with this. Most importantly, 2 Peter, Peter writes, most importantly, I want to remind you that in the last days, scoffers will come mocking the truth and following their own desires. They will say, what happened to the promise that Jesus is coming again? Guess what, ladies and gentlemen, it's been 2,000 years since that was first uttered. Jesus is coming back. Now, 2,000 years later, what are we saying? Jesus is coming back. The signs of the times are here. That's what I hear anyway. They will say, what happened to the promise that Jesus is coming again? From before the times of our ancestors, everything was remained the same since the world was first created. They deliberately forget, however, these scoffers and mockers, that God made the heavens by the word of his command, and he brought the earth out of the water and surrounded it with water. Then he used the water to destroy the ancient world with a mighty flood, and, and by the same word, the present heavens and earth have been stored up for fire. They are being kept for the day of judgment when ungodly people will be destroyed. That's Peter's words. Don't get mad at me. But you must not forget this one thing, dear friends. A day is like a thousand years to the Lord, and a thousand years is like a day. Time is irrelevant for God. The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he's being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to receive everlasting life. Why do you think he's waiting so long? Because he knows there are people that are right there on the edge for every generation, and he wants more and more and more people to hear his word, to be set free from sin and death so that they can receive eternal life. But the day of the Lord will come as unexpectedly as a thief. Then the heavens will pass away with a terrible noise, and the very elements themselves will disappear with fire. And this is what I read you earlier. Verse 13, but we are looking forward to the new heavens and the new earth, he promised, a world filled with God's righteousness. And so, dear friends, while you're waiting for these things to happen, make every effort to be found living peaceful lives that are pure and blameless in his sight. What's our theme for next year? Peace. And remember, the Lord's patience gives people time to be saved. This is what our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you with the wisdom God gave him. Speaking of these things in all of his letters, some of his com comments are hard to understand. And those who are ignorant and unstable have twisted his letters to mean something quite different, just as they do with other parts of Scripture. But this will result in their destruction. I'm warning you ahead of time, dear friends. Be on guard so that you won't be carried away by the errors of these wicked people or lose your own secure footing. Rather, you must grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our glory to him both now and forever. Amen. Father, this morning, we remember 
the truth of your word. And we don't take lightly the words of scripture, but instead hold them close as words of truth. We pray in this place today that you'd forgive us of our sins, not just as individuals, but as a church. Forgive us for not representing you well in the public the way we should. Forgive us for the doubts that we have from time to time that hold us back and keep us from action. Forgive us when we misunderstand your word or misapply it in ways that you never intended. But thank you for your grace that covers a multitude of sins. We repent right now in this place and we surrender everything to you. And yes, though we suffer now through difficulties, trials, and tribulations, we do it with a sense of joy knowing that this is temporary and what you've prepared for us for eternity is beautiful and amazing. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's word. Make sure to visit us on our website, www.northmaincog.org, where you can learn more about us. If you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes, or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be helpful too. Donating to the ongoing ministry of North Main is easy. Just go to our website and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.